phones, open up to Genesis chapter 12. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to open by going somewhat autobiographical. And I was going to speak on the stage, but I just can't help myself. And I'm going to come down here to be a little bit closer. Is that okay? Okay. Genesis chapter 12. Um, Growing up, you guys, uh, just to let you know a little bit about myself, growing up, uh, I was raised in a textbook blue-collar family. And uh, for those of you who have taken perspectives, how many of you have taken perspectives? Just a few show of hands. Okay, this will be somewhat familiar to you uh, for those of you who have heard me teach at perspectives. But back to the story. Uh, growing up, I was raised in a textbook blue-collar family. And as a young kid, uh, my dad's idea of fun would be to take me out on the weekends and make me help him cut wood. And I remember thinking as a young kid, probably between the ages of about 7 and 10 years old, uh, running a chainsaw, that's like a liability in today's world, right? Um, I remember thinking to myself, this feels like a terrible way to ruin my childhood. And, um, and so as a result of me feeling like my father had this motive to ruin my childhood, I would express my disdain towards him with constant complaining. And so we would go on these regular weekend woodcutting expeditions, and we hadn't been out there for more than three to five minutes, which for, you know, a seven to ten-year-old feels like an eternity. And I would immediately start complaining about how miserable it was. Like, man, Dad, isn't there something better that I could be doing, like frying my brain on video games? And there were a number of reasons that my dad wanted to take me out on the weekends with him and make me help him cut wood. He wanted to create an environment of father and son bonding time. He wanted to teach me good, strong work ethic. Uh, But as I mentioned before, I'm convinced that his main motive was to really make me miserable. And so every time that I would start to complain, uh, my dad would silence my complaint and he would say, Sean, I want you to be quiet and I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you. If you don't ever want to cut a single piece of wood in your life or drag another piece of brush, then you need to listen to what I'm about to instruct you to do. And because I was so miserable, I mean, he literally had me right in the palm of his hand. I was prepared to do anything that he told me. And so he would say, Sean, here's what you need to know about life, and here's what you need to do. You need to go to college, right? You need to grow up. You need to go to college. And when you go to college, uh, you need to get a great degree. And the reason that you need to go get a great degree at college is so that you can get a great paying job. And the reason that you need to get a great paying job is so that you can actually just pay someone else to cut your wood. And I was like, boy, Dad, that's genius. Um, And so, you know, just hearing his logic as a young kid uh, made real sense to me. And so that's what I heard on a regular basis from my father, that really my purpose in life was to take my education seriously as a high school student, and then if opportunity presented itself, then I needed to try to go to college, and whenever I went to college, when I got there, I needed to take my education seriously at college so that I could get a great degree, and why did I need a great degree so I could get a great paying job, and why did I need a great paying job, you guys, so that what? I could pay someone to cut my wood, right? Um, It was really so that I could chase uh, the American dream, right, if we're all being honest. And so that's what I heard that my purpose in life was. And, you know, it wasn't just coming from my father that I heard that tune, um, that I heard that phrase that, man, this is what you need to do with your life. But it was really coming from a number of different voices um, at that time in my life. It was coming from my dad. Uh, It was coming from my classmates, Right in high school, in addition to my dad and my classmates, I was hearing the same voice even from you know, some of my high school teachers. And it wasn't just from them, but it was really coming from culture at large that I was hearing this voice that that's what my purpose in life was. 
And I don't fault my father um, for telling me what he told me as a young kid. In fact, uh, any good parent would want the best for their child. And my dad had um, good intentions for me. Uh, His words were well-meaning. And I think that most of the other people who were telling me to pursue something similar uh, had well-intentioned meaning behind their words as well. But what I did was I turned it into this great excuse Right to go off to college to try to do what I could to excel in school so that I could really get this great degree, as I said, to get this great paying job. And the reason that I wanted a great paying job was so that I could settle into this thing that we call the comfortable American life, right? And so that's what I thought my purpose was, was to chase this thing called the American dream. Now, hear me say um, loud and clear that there's nothing wrong with going to college. There's nothing wrong with not going to college. There's nothing wrong with blue-collar work, there's nothing wrong with white-collar work. But because of the sinful motives of my heart, um, I was convinced that I wanted to settle in to a very comfortable American life. I was adamant and driven to pursue this thing called the American dream. And because we'd grown up blue-collar, lower-middle class, my intentions, I was going to go make a lot of money. Um, I had plans to go be a dentist. We didn't have any doctors in our family, but I was fairly decent at math and science in high school. And if you're decent at math or science in high school and you get the opportunity to go off to college, you usually end up pursuing one or two degree programs and careers. You're either a doctor or you're what? Anybody guess? Like an engineer? Okay, something along those lines. And so I went and did a job shadow my senior year of high school with this civil engineer in our local town. And after spending a day with him, I thought, that's miserable. No, thanks. Um, by the way, if you're an engineer, it's not personal. Um, it just was not something that I was interested in. And so I went and did this job shadow with a dentist in town. Uh, why that particular medical field? Who knows? Um, I knew the guy from church, and he offered an invitation. And so here I am, right, in the dental office, standing next to these people with their mouth wide open. What could be more awkward? I mean, who likes to go to the dentist to begin with? No one, right? One, one, right? one person likes to go to the dentist, let alone having a teenager stand over you and watch the whole event. And so here I am, I'm watching this guy work, and I'm thinking, this is it, right? This is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to pursue a career in medicine. I'm going to go off to dental school. I'm going to make six-figure income. I'm going to work three days a week, and then I'll just golf the other four. And I don't even like golf. <clears throat> but that's what I was convinced that I was going to go do. And so I graduate high school. Um, chasing this thing called the American dream because that's what everybody seemed to be telling me that I was supposed to do. And I graduate high school, headed off to college, and if I could sum up for you guys my entry okay, into collegiate life, I would have summed it up with three really simple statements, and they went something like this. Okay, This is my on-ramp to college life. Me, my agenda, and just a little bit of Jesus if it was convenient for me to squeeze him in. As long as Christ did not interrupt my plans, my dreams, my hopes, my ambitions, my goals, my wants, my desires, then I was convenient with dragging him along. Right? As though that's any kind of a Christianity whatsoever. But that's how it went. And so off to college I go, pursuing myself, pursuing my agenda, and then just a little bit of Jesus if it was convenient. And all of that changed my sophomore year of college when God sent this minister into my path. And I wasn't looking for this guy. He came out of nowhere. Um, he totally came out of nowhere. I mean, this guy T-boned me. I wasn't looking for him. 
Um, but God sent him my way, and I remember um, here I am pursuing me and my agenda and just a little bit of Jesus, and I crossed paths with this minister, and I remember him sitting me down, and I remember him sharing with me. He said, Sean, there's a few things that I need to tell you. Uh, first of all, life's not about you, and it's not about your agenda. In fact, you should probably think about getting over yourself. And I thought, I think I might want to punch you in the mouth. Um, some of you are like, did you really think that? No, I didn't. But I was quite put off by this, guy's, um, by this guy's direct attitude. And so I remember him looking at me, and I remember him saying, Sean, life's not about you, and life's not about your agenda. And not only should you consider thinking about getting over yourself, which was a big pill to swallow, but then he took it one step further. And he said, Sean, let me share with you what life is about, okay? Um, life is about God, and life is about God's agenda. And God's agenda is actually... It's quite basic. It's quite simple. God's agenda is really to make himself known worldwide. God's purpose is to make himself famous through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and then he took this book, the Bible, and he did something that I'd never seen before in my life. And he opened it up in Genesis chapter 1, and he walked me through the whole Bible from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the book of Revelation actually walked me right past the maps too. Did you guys know there are maps in the back of your Bibles? Okay, those are helpful. <clears throat> and so um, I, I had never, right, I'd never seen anything like that. Um, he starts on page one and walks me through the entire text showing me from God's word, right, what God's purpose was to make God known through God's son among every tongue, every tribe, all nations, and all languages. And I have tried to come up since then, right, this was in 2004, I've tried to come up since then with a way to describe what happened to me. Um, I've tried to come up with all kinds of different ways to describe what God did, but here's the simplest way to say it. By the time this guy got done walking me through God's word, the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit does, which is takes God's word, right, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and uses it to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And here I am for the first time in my life, laid open in a way I never had been before. And when he got done talking, the best way I can say it is that really my agenda was over here in a little bitty pile of ashes smoldering. Okay, I had, I can't say it enough. I had never, right? I'd never seen the Bible talked about that way. I had never seen or heard God talked about that way. Um, in fact, I'd never heard about God's global purposes talked about that way at that point in my life. And if I can be quite candid with you guys, um, I had zero interest, right, in what God was doing globally. I had zero interest in global missions, none whatsoever. Um, I was apathetic towards global missions. I was indifferent towards global missions. And I thought, man, missions is not for me, right? Missions is for someone else, somewhere else. Uh, in fact, I thought, man, missions is for the weird people who do not fit in in America. That's why we like mail them overseas. Um, some of you guys are laughing and you can't believe I said it. Some of you are thinking it and you just won't admit it. Um, and so I just thought, man, that's not, for I can see some of you laughing, okay? Um, I thought, man, that's not for me. That's for someone else. And now all of a sudden I am face to face with God, God's word, and God's world in a way I never had been before. And I began to realize quite quickly that if this is true, which it is, that it was going to have major implications for my life. I began to realize that if God 
was, was making clear through his revealed word that he had a plan to bring back through, through his son, through the finished work of Christ, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, that this was going to have massive implications for all of it. It was going to be way more than me just going on a short-term mission trip. Man, this was going to have implications for how I spent my time, how I spent my money, how I raised my kids, how I interacted with my local church, all those things. And so what became crystal clear to me when it was all over with is that this thing that we call global missions, man, it matters to God. It matters to God, and if it matters to God, then it should matter to me, Sean Cooper. It should matter to every single Christian. It should matter to the church, right? And, and what I began to realize was that this thing called God's global missions, it, it wasn't this minister's idea. What I quickly began to realize was that it wasn't, right, the IMB's idea. It wasn't a Southern Baptist Convention idea. It wasn't just something that was for the missions committee. It was something that every single Christian who was united to Christ by faith was called to be involved in. And so I began to realize, wow, I'm going to need to start reevaluating life with a different set of questions in light of what God has revealed through his word, right? I mean, revelation always demands a response from us, always. Revelation always demands a response from us. And so... It became clear to me that things were going to change. It became clear to me that I needed to ask a new set of questions. And so <clears throat> I never planned, I can promise you, that I never planned on graduating college and joining staff with a collegiate ministry and doing what God's had, had me to do for the last 13 years whatsoever. But I'm thankful. God has been extremely gracious, and I count it a huge privilege, okay, to be able to speak to you guys tonight and to be able to open up God's word with you. And so let me tell you where we're headed this evening, okay? We're going to walk, I'm going to walk us through God's word tonight, and we're going to go through the Old Testament this evening, and then next week we're going to pick up in the New Testament, and we're going to focus in specifically on the Gospels. And so that's where we're headed this evening. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get started in God's Word right where he gets started in Genesis chapter 1. Does that sound good enough? Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you for those of us who are gathered this evening. Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Father, that you would give us eyes to see and that you would give us ears to to hear. And so we admit and acknowledge that we need your help tonight to let us see clearly. Lord, we give you thanks for what you have been doing through UBC, and Lord, we are eager to see what you intend to do through UBC. We pray that you would be gracious and merciful to use the next 10 weeks of this seminar to stir our church up, to take more seriously the Great Commission as a body. Lord, I pray for your grace to help me to stand up and teach tonight, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to get started in Genesis chapter 1, right where God gets started. And in Genesis chapter 1, there are two people on the planet, Adam and who? Yep, good, it's not a trick question. <laughs> Okay, and God comes to him in Genesis 1.28, and he gives them the very first commandment in Scripture, and this is what it says. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Okay, this happens to be the very first commandment that God gives mankind in Scripture. And if you think about it long enough and hard enough, it's also about the only one that we've managed to keep, right? It's like, honor your father and mother, no thanks, have no other gods before me, no thanks, do not lie, no thanks, do not covet, no thanks, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, done, okay? We can do that one. Some of you guys will get that joke later on the drive home, okay? (laughs) Now, all jokes aside, that's actually what God's after, okay? What God is after in Genesis chapter 1 with this very first commandment is that he is commanding explicitly Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth physically. He wants them to populate the earth. And here's why that's important, because at this point in the story, There is no sin between God and mankind. They are living in a perfect relationship with one another. And so, as Adam and Eve begin to fill the earth physically, God is wanting Adam and Eve to teach and train their children and their descendants what it means to know God, to worship God, to love God, to treasure God, to obey God, right? What God is after is Adam and Eve filling the earth physically and teaching and training their descendants what it means to know God spiritually. What God wants is a planet full of people who know him and who worship him. So that's what God's after. However, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Man, what? Sins, right? And we sever our relationship with God. And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible says that every intention in mankind's heart was only set on evil all the time, right? Utter wickedness fills the earth just six chapters into the Bible. And then you get to Genesis chapter 7, and God responds in judgment. He floods the earth, killing everything and everyone, with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals two by two. And as Noah steps off the boat in Genesis 9-1, what are we told? That God blessed Noah, right? Right? And his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and do what, you guys? What's it say? Fill the earth, okay? Notice this pattern, right? There's a pattern where God starts with one man, Adam, and we go from one man to one family to one people. Sin spreads all over the planet, and God basically hits the reset button, and we start over with one man, one family, and that family is going to grow into one what? One people. And so God repeats the command. We're not more than 10 chapters into the Bible, and God has made explicitly clear twice that he wants mankind to fill the earth, to fill the earth. So what's the difference between Genesis chapter 9 and Genesis chapter 1? Sin. That's exactly right. Sin has now entered the picture. Sin has entered the story such that mankind is at rebellion with God. Okay, They are at enmity towards God. Humanity is not neutral towards God. Paul is explicitly clear about that in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 8, that those who are separated from God, they hate God, they're at war with God. And so by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, we come to this story called the Tower of Babel, and this is what we're told. Now, the whole earth had one language and a common speech. So no matter where you went on planet earth, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, everybody's speaking one language. And we go on to learn that as men moved eastward, they found a plain in a place called Shinar, and the Bible says that they settled there. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the sky. Why? So that we might make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
What had God clearly commanded mankind to do? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Okay, God says go. Mankind says what? No. You don't have to have great Bible interpretation skills. You don't have to have a seminary degree, right, to to, to figure out that this is what we call direct disobedience. And in addition to that, not only had God commanded mankind to go and mankind says no, God says, I created you for me, right, to make my name great. But that's what you're built for. That's what you're made for is to make my name great. And and what what is mankind doing? Not only are they refusing to leave and refusing to go, but they decide to make a name for themselves. Now, if this is the first time that you're reading through Genesis chapter 11, you should be pumping the brakes, right? You should be pumping the brakes when you get to this story. And why should you be pumping the brakes at this point when you get to this story? Okay, this is what we call direct disobedience, like the apex of sin, outright defiance. Why should you be pumping the brakes? What should you be saying when you get to Genesis chapter 11? Oh, no. Right, you should be waiting for the next few verses to say something along the lines of, and because of their disobedience, God just flicked them into the sun. Okay, that's not what it says. God responds, and this is how we're told that God responds. Why do I say that? Because what had God done just a few chapters back? Washed them away, right? And it would not have been wrong for God to flick them into the sun. He would have been just to do so. But in his judgment, he also responds in mercy. And this is what we read. The Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the tower. Now, before, everybody was speaking how many languages? By the way, I like audience interaction. I know that's not how we usually do it at UBC, but I'll be soliciting you all night long, okay? We go from one language to what? Multiple languages. We go from one location to multiple locations. In fact, right here in Genesis chapter 11, this is where we get all of the known languages in the world today. They all come from this historic event right here. So all the major languages, Hindi, Mandarin, right, Spanish, French, all those, and then all of the minor dialectical languages, they come from this event. Now, before I go any farther, I want to remind us just very quickly that in the last 11 chapters of the Bible, we have covered roughly 2,000 years of human history. I don't know if you've ever paused to consider that. But God takes roughly the first 11 chapters of the Bible to cover 2,000 years of all of human history. 11 chapters, two millennia, all humanity. Now, why is that so significant? Because God's going to turn around and take the next 14 chapters to cover the life of one guy. And so when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 11, and the question should be begging itself, What is God going to do to gather a people back to himself? That's what God is after, is a people gathered to himself who know him, who love him, who praise him. And so it almost seems paradoxical, right? There's this great reversal such that God has scattered them, but what is he after? He's after a people gathered to himself. I will be their God and they will be my people, That's what God wants. And so what is God going to do to start the gathering process? Well, we don't have to go very far to find an answer because just a chapter later, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household 
And Abram, I want you to go to the land that I am going to show you. And so I had you guys open your Bibles to Genesis 12. Some of you guys may even have flipped back to Genesis chapter 1 and been tracking with me up to this point. But if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to do an exercise in just a minute. But what does God say? He gives Abram an explicit command. And what is the command? Leave. Abraham, I'm commanding you to go. And get used to God saying it because he's going to repeat it over and over and over and over through the entire course of the Bible. In fact, just this morning I was, I was reading through Isaiah in my personal reading time and I got to chapter 20, verse 2, and this is what it says. At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist, take off your sandals from your feet, and he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Some of you guys are like, we came to the wrong, wrong event tonight, okay? There's this repeated theme through all of Scripture, right? God is commanding Abraham to leave. Abraham, I'm commanding you to get out. And notice this isn't something like, hey, Abraham, if you're up for it, if you're interested, if it seems convenient, if it's a good idea, it's a clear-cut, straightforward commandment. Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave. And the Bible also tells us that he's 75 years old when God interrupts his life, right, in his agenda. 75. We have words for that in America, okay? Retired. I don't know that Abram's necessarily looking to go anywhere, and God breaks in. And what is it? By the way, we're going to spend a little bit of time here at Genesis 12. What is it that God is commanding him to leave? Let's look at the text. It's pretty straightforward. Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave your land. Okay, at the time, Abram was living in the land of Ur. It was a port city that sat in the Persian Gulf. It was rich in commerce and trade, and it was soaked in idolatry. Okay, Abraham was an idol worshiper, Joshua chapter 24 tells us. And so Abram's not looking for God. Right? He's not out to try to find God. God comes and finds him, and he speaks. And so he's commanding him to leave his land. And not only is he commanding him to leave his land, he's commanding him to leave his, his loved ones right, and his father's household, the people who he's grown up with, who he's done life with, who she shares the closest relationships with. God is saying to Abram, Abram, I'm commanding you to make a decisive break right, from your land and your loved ones, and specifically your father's household. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And notice God does not bother to tell him where he's going. God doesn't bother to tell him how long he's even staying. Okay, that's like the worst mission trip recruitment tactic that Ryan Martin could ever use, okay? To say that UBC is hosting some sort of a trip and to, never, like, and to not tell you where we're going and to not bother to tell you how long that we intend to even stay. I mean, what kind of results would we expect to see from such a thing as that? But God clearly commands him, Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave your land, and I'm commanding you to leave your loved ones. And, and I want to park us here for just a few minutes, because what is it exactly that God is commanding Abraham to leave? Just so we're clear, right? I don't want us to be mistaken about what's, what's going on here. Abram's 75, and for just a second, okay, tr try to put yourself in Abram's shoes. If you're Abram, okay, if you're Abram, you don't have the option to explore 
career choices. That's not something that you've got the opportunity to do. You don't get the option to think about, man, what are my pursuits? What are my interests? What am I into? What do I like? Where do I get the opportunity to go explore a a, a great career? If you're Abram, you do not have that option. What are you going to do if you're Abram when you grow up as a career? What are you going to do? What your dad does. That's exactly right. And you don't have the option of looking around and looking at cool places to go and thinking through things like that. If you're Abraham, you're going to do what your daddy does, and where are you going to live? You're going to live where your daddy lives. And if you outlive your father, right, and your father dies before you, then you might be blessed enough to receive your dad's what? Inheritance. So you don't have the option to think about, man, where do I want to go? What am I interested in? What are my desires? What interests me? You're going to do what your dad does. You're going to live where your dad lives. And hopefully you'll get to, make, you'll get to take your dad's inheritance if you outlive him. So what, what are we talking about here? What exactly is it that God is saying to Abram? What's he commanding him to do? He's commanding him to take a match, light it on fire, and watch his 401k burn. All of it. He's commanding him to leave everything. He's saying, Abraham, walk away from all of it. Right? And so really, because of the fact that God doesn't even bother to tell Abraham where he's going or how long he's even staying points out to us that this is far less about where and far more about what. Who? This is way less about a place, and this is way more about Abraham being called to a person. Right? And so not only does he command him to leave, but then watch what he promises him. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Right? And you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And Abraham, don't miss the part down at the bottom. All peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. Okay, Abraham, I'm actually out to bless you. And by commanding you to leave your father, I'm going to become your father. By commanding you to leave your land, Abraham, I'm going to give you land. And the land that God's going to give Abraham is not primarily a piece of real estate in Palestine. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells us that Abraham was to inherit the world. Which God's saying this, Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave your father, I'll be your father. I'm commanding you to leave your land because I'm going to give you land. Abraham, I'm commanding you to walk away from your inheritance because I'm going to be your inheritance. And if we get God, we get what? Everything. We get everything. And so, in fact, God's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order for you to be a blessing. Right? Abraham, the blessing's coming to you because I'm ultimately intending to move it through you. And what is the blessing that God's ultimately talking about here to Abraham? Is it material stuff? Is it the land? Well, Abraham's not ever going to inherit the land. Okay? And his offspring, how much of that will he see? And so what is the ultimate blessing that God's talking about right here to Abraham? It's not stuff. It's not material. We're not talking health and wealth gospel here. (laughs) What's the ultimate blessing that God's talking about to Abraham that's eventually going to be a blessing to all peoples of the earth? It's the gospel. It's himself. 
right? God is actually preaching the gospel to Abraham right here in Genesis chapter 12. And some of us may be thinking, what? Wait a second. Jesus is not going to show up on the scene until, right, like a few thousand years later. On what grounds can we say that God is preaching the gospel to Abraham? Paul's going to tell us over in Galatians 3.8 that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all nations will be blessed. So who is the blessing for? All peoples, right? All tribes, all tongues, all languages, all families. Depending on what translation of the Bible you may be reading, it may have a different rendition of that, but for the most part, all of those words are synonymous. And so that's who the blessing is for, right? All peoples. What's the blessing? The gospel. And what's the gospel? Lest we assume that we know, right? What is this thing that we call the good news? Here it is. The good news is this, that through Christ, God is going to fix what we broke back in Genesis chapter 3. And how's he going to do it? By sending Jesus down through Abraham's family bloodline thousands of years later. And what's Christ going to do? He's going to step onto the scene, fully God, right? And fully man. And that's important. That's not just something for theologians and seminary students to argue and debate about. <laughs> okay, fully God and fully man, united in one person. And he's going to step onto the scene and he's going to live the perfect sinless life, spotless and blameless in total fulfillment of the law, keeping every part of it that we could never keep in thought, word, or deed. And then he's going to march to the cross and he's going to die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins in our place as our substitute. He lives the life we couldn't live. He dies the death that we deserve to die. And then three days later... God the Father raises him from the dead through the power of the Spirit, right? The whole Trinity is involved in the resurrection. <laughs> and he's going to raise him from the dead through the power of the Spirit, vindicating him and proving to the world that he's exactly who he said he was. And then God takes it one step further. And he says, whoever, whoever will turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in who Christ is and what Christ did, God says, I will forgive your sins, wipe your slate clean, and give you life forever to enjoy me. That's exactly right, Ryan. Right? And as Christians, man, sometimes the gospel can just become like white noise to us. That blessing, that gift, right? Restored, reconciled relationship with God. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And the good news is, is God is going to fix that problem through Christ. And when we turn from our sins and trust in him, we get God forever. And that's not just a gift for us to be enjoyed, right? For us to enjoy here in America and here at UBC. But that gift God is promising to Abraham is eventually going to make its way to all nations. So if you have your Bible with you, I had you open up to Genesis 12. Some of you guys pulled it up on your smartphones, and this illustration won't work all that great. But if you have your Bibles, here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to hold it up in the air like this, okay? And some of you are really nervous right now because you got stuff that's going to fall out. Okay, you got bookmarks. I can see some of you. Okay, hold it up in the air like this. I remember one time I was teaching at a student conference out in um, Montana, and this guy raised up his Bible, and the whole thing just ripped out of the binding. <laughs> I felt terrible. So I'll get you another one, bro. Don't worry about it. Some of you are getting tired right now. Hold them up in the air. Some of you are wishing you wouldn't, wish you wouldn't have bought the study Bible. Okay? Here's what I want you to see. This may seem elementary, but I don't want you to miss it. 
In Genesis chapter 12, God comes and makes his promise to Abraham that through all nations, right through him, all nations will be blessed. What hangs off of this promise? What hangs off this promise? The rest of the story. You can put your books down now. You can put your Bibles down. Why do I want you to see this? Because the whole story hangs off of this gospel promise. Now, this isn't the first time that we see the gospel promised. The first time we get a glimpse of it is in Genesis 3.15, right? But here, in Genesis 12, we get a fuller expression of who that gospel will be including. All nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. If God does not see this promise through, then all of this right here is a waste of time. In fact, anytime God makes a promise, he hangs his entire character off that promise. If he makes a promise and doesn't come through on it, he's a liar. He's not God. He's not to be trusted. And he's no different than you and me. Martin Luther, okay, love him or leave him, the great reformer, um, said that Genesis 12, 1 through 3 are some of the most important and profound verses in the entire Bible. If you miss, right, if we miss Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you're going to miss the next nine weeks of this class. I would argue if, if we miss Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we miss the whole Bible. And so what we see from this point forward is this, okay? Is that from this point forward, what we're going to notice is that God begins to reveal his purpose through his promise. Or you might hear me say it this way. We're going to watch God fulfill his purpose through his promise. And so what's the promise? To bless all nations, right? It's very clear. God makes his promise to be, right, for Abraham to be a blessing to all peoples. And not only does God promise it to Abraham, but just like Adam and just like Noah, we go from one man to one family to one what? People. And we go from one man, Abraham, to one family because God repeats the promise to his son Isaac. And then he repeats the same thing to his grandson Jacob. Isaac, through you and your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Not probably, not maybe, not hopefully, but what? Will, right? And Jacob, the same thing I promised your father Isaac and your grandfather Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so God's eventually going to grow Abraham's family into what nation? The nation of Israel, right? Abraham, you're blessed to be a blessing. The blessing's coming to you because I'm moving it through you. Isaac, same thing. Jacob, same thing. Abraham's family, you might argue, is kind of like the first missionary family in the Bible. And God's going to take Abram's family and use them to set his purpose in motion to start gathering all peoples of the earth back to himself. You get to the end of Genesis, and there are 70 people in Abraham's family. 70. Look around the room. Like, literally take your eyes off me and look around the room. It's probably double what we've gotten here. You get to the end of Genesis, and there are 70 people in Abram's family, which makes you wonder if God's missed something. Because what did he promise Abraham? That his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and more numerous than the sands on the sea? And God promised Abraham land? And where's Abraham's family living by the end of Genesis? Not in the land. Where are they? They're in Egypt. You get to the end of Genesis, and you're thinking... Great job, God. Maybe something went wrong. No. And so what's God going to do? He's going to grow Abraham's family into the nation of Israel. And out of all the nations, 
right, that God scattered at the Tower of Babel, God's going to pick one nation to reach all nations. Let me say that again. Out of all the nations that God scattered at the Tower of Babel, he's going to choose one nation. Who's the nation? Israel, to reach all nations. Israel, I'm blessing you in order for you to be a blessing. The blessing's coming to you so that I can move it through you. Israel, you're going to be my chosen people for my chosen purpose. And what's my chosen purpose? To fulfill my promise. And what does my promise include? Blessing all peoples, Jews and who? Gentiles. Now, that's a lot of peace, right? So let me say it again. Israel, you're going to be my chosen people for my chosen purpose. And what's my purpose include? Fulfilling a promise. And what does that promise include? Being a blessing to all what? To all peoples. And so you turn the page, right, from Genesis to Exodus, and we find the people living in the land. And right there in the very first chapter of Exodus, what are we told? That over a period of 400 years, God begins to multiply and grow the Israelites, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 9 and Genesis chapter 1, where God told Adam and Eve and the family, and God told Noah and the family to do what, you guys? Be fruitful and multiply. He multiplies them into an exceedingly great number. The Pharaoh in charge during that day realizes that he's got a free labor force on our hands. And so he begins to take advantage of the Israelites. We know that Israel can't put up with it. They can't take it. So they cry out to God, God, get us out. God says, all right, Mo, I want you to go. There it is again, right? Moses, I want you to go. By the way, that was a good Bible joke. I don't know if any of you caught it. <clears throat> and so God's saying, right, Moses, I want you to lead the people out. And so God says, here's how we're going to do it. Ten plagues. Now, at that time, Egypt was the most powerful nation probably in the known world. All eyes were on what nation? Egypt. And God says, we're going to do 10 plagues. Why 10? Why not one and done? It'd make for a short story. It'd be pretty simple. Why 400 years? Why does God allow Israel to suffer for 400 years under abusive leadership? Right? Under abusive leadership, they are taken advantage of century after century after century. Moses tells us in Exodus chapter 9, but it's for this purpose that I have raised you up, Pharaoh. It's to show you my power, right, so that my name might be proclaimed where? In all the earth. When God orchestrates the 10 plagues, after it's over with, right, he raises Egypt to the ground. And it's, when it's over with, right, and the people leave, who bears witness to the entire event? Not just the Israelites. A half a dozen times, if you read through the Exodus account, God says, I'm doing what I'm doing so that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. And not just the Egyptians, but Moses explicitly says the whole what? The whole earth. Because even in the 10 plagues, God is at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so we don't make it past the second book of the Bible and immediately God is at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise. And not only do we see it in the Exodus account, but eventually we know that the Israelites roll out of Egypt. They're in the desert. They've been out there for no more than about three days. And what are they doing? They're complaining. And what are they complaining about? They want to go back where? To Egypt. What, are they, what were they complaining about to begin with? Getting out of Egypt. <laughs> So do you want in or do you want out, right? I mean, we're fickle people. And so here they are, they're complaining, and God says, what we're going to do is I'm going to have you take laps in the desert for 40 years, get to walking. And while they're out there in the desert walking, he sends Moses up to the mountain, and we see God fulfilling his purpose through his promise, not only in the Ten Plagues, but in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4, 6, observe them carefully, for this will show your understanding to the nations, right? Your wisdom and your understanding to the nations. When God gives the law to Israel, 
There were numerous functions that the law fulfilled. John talked about some of these this last Sunday in his sermon on Galatians 5. One of the things that the law does is it drives us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. But in addition to that, what's God saying to the people of Israel here? What's Moses telling them? Here's what he's saying, that the law is not a bad thing. Right? The psalmist tells us that the law is a good thing. Paul tells us that he delights in it. It's like honey. It's not a bad thing. And so when God gives the law, the law is an extension of God's character. It's not separate from who he is. And so what's happening is, is Moses is saying, Israel, your obedience to God is a reflection of God. Now, we know that Israel couldn't obey the law, right? What the law commands, it does not give us the power to do. But nonetheless, right, when Israel was obedient, which was few and far between, when they were obedient they, right, to God, they became a reflection of God. And who was watching them? Who's Moses say? The nations. And so just spinning out example after example, we see God at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise, not only in the ten plagues, not only in the Ten Commandments, but eventually Moses is going to pass the baton to Joshua. And Joshua is going to march the children into the promised land. Where are their ki- Like, where are their parents? He's going to take in the kids. Where are their parents? Dead. In the desert. And why are they dead in the desert? Because of their unbelief, right? The writer of Hebrews tells us that they could not enter into rest because of their unbelief. They wouldn't trust God. And we read that story and we're like, wow, gosh, is that what God's like? He's holy. We should be asking the question, is that what sin's like? Right? A low view of sin, a low view of God's holiness makes it difficult for us to make sense out of events where God sends an entire nation in the desert to kill off their parents and start over with a new what? A new people. And a new leader. Here we go again. Are you guys seeing the pattern? Right? And so here they are, dead in the desert. Dead in the desert, and Joshua takes the children into the promised land. And we don't get past the first five chapters of the book of Joshua. And listen to what Joshua's going to tell the children. Hey, kids. Remember, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Some of the children that Joshua took into the promised land were very likely alive to see both events happen. Can you imagine that? Bearing witness to both of those events? When the Israelites go out into the desert, what do they complain about? What are they complaining about? What? I heard someone say it. Food. And what else are they complaining about? Water. Lord, where are we going to get a cup of water from? And what had God just done to get them out of Egypt? Split an entire body of what? Water. And swallowed up Pharaoh's army in it in one fell swoop. And they're they're griping about where they're going to get a cup of water. And so we shouldn't be surprised, right, by God's response. He had demonstrated his power by raising Egypt to the ground, swallowing up Pharaoh's army, And so what does he do? God provides for him. Does he provide for him because they deserve it? Hardly. (laughs) Okay? But he does anyways. And he gives them water from the rock. And he gives them food. He gives them clothes on their back. 
He gives them manna from heaven. All of those things pointing us to Jesus, right? All of those things getting us to Christ. And so Joshua takes the children in and he says, kids, remember. Remember how the Lord your God dried up the Jordan. And for those of you who are there to see it, how he dried up the Red Sea. I don't want us to forget it. In fact, it's so important that we're actually going to set up 12 memorial stones right here in the riverbed because I don't want us to forget how God saved us. We're going to remember God saving us out from under the hand of Pharaoh and redeeming us. 12 stones. We're going to do this in remembrance. No surprise that Jesus tells us when we take the Lord's Supper, do this what? In remembrance. Why would he tell? Why would Joshua tell the Israelites, do this in remembrance? Why would Christ tell us as his people, do this in remembrance? Because we're prone to do what? Forget. What was Israel's sin among many? That they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 15. They forgot and forsook the Lord their God. They grew fat and forgot the Lord their God. They were repeatedly forgetting and even as I, as I stand up here and share, and as, as we look at the nation of Israel, it's easy sometimes for us on this side of the page to say, oh, silly Israel, when are they ever going to get it? When in fact, what should we be saying? Oh, silly me. Oh, silly us. Right? We are no different. We are no different. And so Joshua says, Israel, we're going to set up these memorial stones. Now, let me paint a picture for you about the, the, the gravity of what's going on here, right? I think sometimes when we read the, the story of the, the, the Exodus, I think when we read the story of the parting of the Red Sea and the River Jordan, sometimes maybe we fail to forget what's exactly going on. I know that I'm prone to do this. But when you get to the end of Genesis, how many people are there in Abram's family? Seventy. There's seventy. How many Israelites are we talking about by the time we get to Joshua chapter 4? Could have been upwards of two to three million. Now, how do we get that figure? I didn't just pull that out of thin air. There's a book in our Bible called Numbers. Yes, the one we don't read because it's full of what? Numbers. But among the many things that were told in the book of Numbers was that the Israeli army numbered 650,000 people, roughly. Now, if we were to take that number and double it conservatively, it puts us at about 1.2, 1.3 million. That doesn't include women and children. That doesn't include those who are outside the age of military fighting. Could have been upwards of two to three million. So let me illustrate this for you. This is a thumbnail picture of Dallas, Texas. Anybody from Dallas in here? A few of you. Dallas, Texas. Now this isn't all of Dallas, but as I've spent the last 13 years traveling across the country, speaking at different churches and different campus ministries, I fly in and out of DFW regularly, and I try to get a window seat. And I want to see Dallas for a good reason. Because there are roughly two to three million people in Dallas proper. I'm not talking the greater metropolitan area. I'm talking Dallas proper. So I want you to imagine for just a second, God stopping the Mississippi River and all of Dallas proper walking through on dry land. We read it like it's a two-minute event, right? They're in Egypt, they're out of Egypt. They're in, they're out. Who bore witness to the fact that God split the Red Sea? Not just Israel, not just Egypt. Why is, God, why is God doing what he's doing? Because he's fulfilling his purpose through a promise to Abraham. God split the Red Sea so that all peoples of the earth might know that he was God. Not just Israel, not just the Egyptians, not just the Canaanites. And not only do we see it in examples like this, but take, for example, David and Goliath. 
Why does God allow David to slaughter Goliath? This day, David says, I will strike you down so that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel. We see God at work to fulfill his purpose through his promise in the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments, the Red Sea, the River Jordan, David and Goliath. Or take, for example, his son, Solomon. Why does God give Solomon his wisdom? Solomon asks for it in order that he might lead the people. It's a sincere request. But it wasn't just for Solomon, and it wasn't just for the people of Israel. People of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his great wisdom. And not only do we see it in these examples, but here's a whole other list. We don't have time to talk about these tonight. The Queen of Sheba is going to travel over 1,500 miles north, probably from modern-day Yemen, maybe Ethiopia, all the way up to Jerusalem to talk to this guy, Solomon. Rahab the Canaanite, Naaman the Syrian, the mixed multitude that left Egypt in Exodus 12, 38, Ruth the Moabite, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel and the lions, then the whole book of Jonah, where God says to Jonah, go, and Jonah says, what? No, we're right back to Genesis chapter 11. Nothing new under the sun, Solomon says. We could spend literally hours going through example after example after example in the Old Testament of God at work, right? Working in and through Israel to be a blessing to the nations and to make himself known to Moabites, Canaanites, Philistines, Egyptians, Syrians, Ninevites. Take, for example, the Psalms. Okay, How many of you guys, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this Psalm, Psalm 4610, raise your hand if you've heard of it, right? Be still, how's the rest of it go? Know that I'm God. This is what it says, and um, we're pretty familiar with what it says, but this is what it oftentimes ends up looking like, okay? Some of you guys like, might have this picture in your house, okay? <laughs> Maybe like hanging over the back of your toilet in your bathroom. Um, how do I know? Because I've been in enough people's houses across the country to see it repeatedly, it's like, it might be the most famous passage in Christendom, like second to John 3.16. It makes like all the Christian coffee mugs. There's only one problem with this picture. Only one problem. Psalm 46.10a. Whatever on earth might that be about? Well, obviously, there's not enough white space on the page to get the whole verse in. Right? Some of us... I'm thinking, the other half, yeah, what's the other half say? That God will be exalted among the nations. That he will be exalted in all the earth. The ten plagues, the ten commandments, the Red Sea, the River Jordan, David and Goliath, Solomon's wisdom, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nehemiah and the wall, Jonah, over and over and over again. I remember the first time that I got exposed to God's heart for the nations. I thought I'd go get some books on it at a local Christian bookstore here in town. And I remember walking in and feeling lost, right? They got everything in Christian bookstores that you can imagine these days. They're dwindling. Christian bookstores are dying. But for the ones that are still left, they're sort of like a, uh, you know, every one-stop shop for all your Jesus needs. And so I remember walking into a local one here several years ago, and I went up to the counter and I asked the young guy at the counter, can you please point me to the mission section? And I remember him looking at me and I remember him telling me, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have a mission section because missions books just don't end up selling. He said, they just don't help keep the lights on. And I was like, man, welcome to evangelical America where missions is just like one siloed event, just one thing that we do a year, missions March, missions May. 
when in fact it's, it's what God is doing from page one in Scripture, gathering a people back to himself. And we not only see it in the Psalms, but and we see it in major and minor prophecies alike. Isaiah 49.6 is a, really a job description of the coming Messiah. And what are we told? God the Father says to God the Son, it is too small of a thing that you, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. The Father is saying to the Son that it would be far too small for him to go down there and just save Israelites. But God also promised that he would make him a light to the nations so that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That phrase, the ends of the earth, right, Jesus is going to pick up on in the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth. And not only do we see it in major prophecies like Isaiah 49, 6, but we also see it in minor prophecies like Malachi 1:11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, God says, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You can't get away from it. You can't escape it. And once you see it, you can never unsee it, right? It's like the Big Dipper. How many of us have seen the Big Dipper? Three of us? Okay. <laughs> After we're done tonight, we'll be going outside. <laughs> okay. Once you see how those seven stars connect, you can never unsee it. And once you see for the very first time a biblical theology of missions from Genesis to Revelation, you can never unsee it. God has made a promise to Abraham to bless all nations. And through the entire course of the Old Testament and straight into the New, he is at work to fulfill that purpose and that promise. And so God blessed Israel to be a blessing to the nations Right? They were his chosen people to fulfill his chosen purpose through his promise. And you get to the end of the Old Testament, and what had Israel done with their blessings? Well, quite simply, they fell more in love with the gift than the giver. They fell more in love with the blessings than the blesser. And they fell more in love with creation than they did the creator. And we have a word for that. It's called idolatry. And so how do we end the Old Testament? Well, Ezekiel 36.20 gives us an account, and this is what we're told. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. Wherever they went, they profaned God's name. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, right, Instead of holding the blessings, the blessings were holding them. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to turn the page out of the Old Testament and into the New, and we're going to take a look as God's story continues into the New Testament. We are left wanting when you come to the end of the Old Testament, wanting, right, for a Savior, wanting for a King, wanting more, wanting to get past Israel's failings and shortcomings, and so we turn the page from the Old Testament into the New. And next week, we'll start actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want us to take a look at a warning that Paul gives to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so let me pray for us. And then we're going to turn our time to discussing some questions. Lord, thank you for an opportunity just to take a peek at your faithfulness. Lord, your faithfulness to fulfill your promises and to gather 
to begin gathering a people to yourself, God, from all peoples. Lord, thanks for an opportunity to stand up and teach tonight and to open your word. In Jesus' name, amen.